Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. The statement on defence put before Parliament in February 1964 described the Royal Air Force as being in the forefront of technical progress. It cited one programme in particular to support this claim, TSR-2. This aircraft, it enthused, promises to be one of the most potent and flexible instruments of military power yet devised and should have a long and effective life. 20 development of pre-production aircraft are now on order and negotiations are in progress for a production order of 30 aircraft. However, just 14 months after the statement was presented, Chancellor of the Exchequer James Callaghan, during his annual budget statement to the House of Commons on the 6th of April 1965, signalled the government's decision to cancel the project. According to one recent work, this summary ending of TSR2 just when it was showing exceptional promise is a subject that still arouses passionate opinions over half a century after the event. However, the decision was actually the culmination of a lengthy political and strategic debate, searching over several years as of the programme's viability. In this paper, I will attempt to place into context some of the political factors that influenced the TSR2 programme prior to Callaghan's fateful announcement. What led to, in Dr Geoffrey Williams' later judgment, the melancholy spectacle of a great nation forced to cancel an important military aircraft. Following the release of GOR339 to the UK aviation industry, the Air Ministry referred um, the um, the programme to the Defence Research Policy Committee for approval. Although this was forthcoming in June 1958, the intervening period would see the Admiralty, with the first Sea Lord, Earl Manbatten, in the van, make a determined effort to advance the Blackburn NA-39 in place um, of an aircraft designed to meet JOR-339 as the RAS Canberra replacement. Although the Admiralty were unsuccessful, this inter-service campaign in Humphrey Wynne's judgment was to see the escalation of a matter of military aircraft procurement into a major political issue, bound up as the requirement for uh, for a type to come into service in in the mid-1960s in the was, with future British defence policy. The determination with which the Air Ministry fought the case for GOR339 also reflected the growing significance of the aircraft in RAF force planning. The initial case for a new tactical strike reconnaissance aircraft invested primarily on the need to replace the Canberra interdictors and reconnaissance aircraft based in Germany as part of 2nd Tactical Air Force, renamed RAF Germany 2nd Tactical Air Force on the 1st of January 1959. In his 1956 review, Ivalor Chapman referred only to the re-equipment of the four Canberra interdictor squadrons in Germany. It was subsequently envisaged that 48 TSR-2s would replace their Canberra BI-6s and BI-8s on a one-to-one basis. Subsequently, it was agreed that further airframes should be procured for reconnaissance purposes. However, the Air Ministry's plans for the new aircraft would soon be revised to incorporate new deployments. By 1960, it became clear that the RS Canberra squadrons outside Northwest Europe would also need to be re-equipped. In that year, the case for reintroducing TSR-2 to the Middle East Air Force was made by the latter's Air Officer Commanding-in-Chief, 
Air Marshal Sir William MacDonald. Three years earlier, four Canberra bomber squadrons had been located at Aquitiri, Cyprus, to form the MEAF strike wing. MacDonald now recommended that the strike force should be re-equipped with two squadrons of TSR-2s, plus three squadrons of uh, fighter ground attack aircraft in the period 1961 to 64, a total of 16 TSR-2s. MacDonald received notice that the proposal had been approved in October 1960. It was also intended that the sole RAF Canberra squadron in the Far East Air Force should also transition to TSR-2. By this stage, the project had already passed a significant um, political milestone. On the 26th of July 1960, the Minister of Defence, Howard Watkinson, had circulated to the Cabinet Defence Committee lists of the major projects within the defence programme that require decisions now or in the next few months. In addition to six relating to air defence and a further six to preparations for limited war, two other major projects were included, improved blue steel and the TSR-2. Regarding the latter, Watkinson noted that a decision would soon be required as to the placing of a development contract for the aircraft, and he warned that if this were to be delayed, it would become increasingly difficult to maintain the momentum of the programme. Secretary of State, the Secretary of State for Air, George Ward, duly made his pitch for a full development contract for, the, for TSR2 in a second memorandum dated the 15th of September 1960. There is no change in the requirement for a tactical strike reconnaissance aircraft with the characteristics described in the Defence White Paper of 1959, he noted. High performance and first class equipment are essential to any tactical strike reconnaissance aircraft which is to operate successfully or even survive in the face of air opposition of the calibre which we must reckon in the, in the mid-60s. Since we cannot afford such an aircraft in large numbers, it must also be flexible. It must not be tied to a small number of expensive and vulnerable runways. No aircraft in prospect, British or foreign, other than TSR2, combines the required characteristics in adequate measure. Ward described the tactical strike capability of the TSR-2 as being vital if we are to stay in businesses and air power, maintain an effective military presence in Europe and overseas, or participate effectively with conventional weapons in hostilities short of global war. NATO remained paramount. The considerably reduced RAF presence in Germany could only be maintained if the TSR-2 replaces the Canberra, and failure to do so would oblige the British Army of the Rhine, BAOR, to largely depend on our European allies for effective tactical air support. Additionally, for the UK to meet its ongoing Central Treaty Organisation, CENTO, and Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation, CIATO, uh, um, responsibilities, it would be necessary for the Canberra's based in Cyprus and Tenga to be replaced with TSR-2s. As a reconnaissance platform, Ward noted that TSR-2 would be essential to provide the information required for tactical air operations and by the Army. He also stressed the importance of TSR-2 as an offensive counter-air asset. One of the lessons learned by bitter experience from 1940 onwards was that the ability to create and maintain a favourable air situation for our land and air forces constituted an essential element in military effectiveness. To meet this requirement, 
The Royal Air Force must have aircraft which can strike the enemy Air Force on its bases. Ward's fundamental argument was that the Canberra would no longer be credible as a strike reconnaissance aircraft by the middle of the coming decade. And if no alternative was forthcoming, the consequences could be dire. If the Canberra is not replaced, the Royal Air Force, short of resorting to strategic nuclear weapons, could threaten only potential opponents with little or no air force of their own, which could not expect any assistance from the Soviet bloc or others hostile to our interests. With regard to the cost, around six million had already been committed to this project, and the Ministry of Aviation estimated that the further 82.6 million would be expended on research and development by 1967-68. To maintain a front line of about 100 for 10 years or more, and to provide the aircraft required for training, it was anticipated that a total of approximately 142 TSR-2 airframes would be needed to be built. Production expenditure between 1966-67 and 1970-71 was estimated at 189 million and the total cost of the project was therefore placed at, at approximately 277.6 million. Given that it was essential and that the bill for this aircraft spread over years can be met without distorting the pattern of the defence budget, the Secretary of State for Air concluded by asking his colleagues to reaffirm the need to develop the TSR-2 for the RAF and to agree that the full development contract for the airframes should now be placed. Ward's memorandum was considered by the committee on the following day. In addition to Prime Minister Harold Macmillan as chair, other ministers around the table during the discussion included Ward himself, Chancellor of the Exchequer Selwyn Lloyd, the Minister of Defence Howard Watkinson, Geoffrey Rippon, the Parliamentary Secretary at the Ministry of Aviation, and the Lord Privy Seal Edward Heath, the Chiefs of Staff Lord Van Batten, Field Marshal Sir Francis Festing, Admiral Sir Casper John, and Air Chief Marshals of Thomas Pike were also present. During the discussion, Macmillan sounded a dubious note. His experiences in government prior to becoming Prime Minister had left him sceptical sceptical as to the value of complex and expensive conventional weapons in an era of US-Soviet nuclear confrontation. Moreover, he had long been conscious of the way in which defence procurement had distorted the UK's manufacturing base. For example, in a note to the Chancellor to Chancellor of the Exchequer Rab Butler in August 1955, Macmillan, then Foreign Secretary, argued that any viable defence policy must in future rest on the UK's nuclear arsenal and that the deterrent of the and the deterrent of the counterattack. Moreover, given that our economy cannot stand defence expenditure on the present scale indefinitely, he believed that we ought to consider abandoning those parts of, of which are really, use, really useless, especially as relief of this kind would be not only in terms of budget expenditure, but would also be a great advantage in re- reducing the burden on the metal-using and engineering industries on which our expert, exports must depend in the future. Given that to approve, approve development costs of the order contemplated virtually committed us to production of a substantial number of aircraft, Macmillan now posed three questions to the committee. First, what was the exact requirement and how important it was? 
Second, could this be met by some other means, either by missiles or by some less expensive aircraft? Third, could we afford the cost? As it appeared increasingly unlikely in Macmillan's view that we should be involved in limited war as distinct from police actions independently of the Americans, he pondered whether the UK couldn't look to the US military for tactical air support. In the case of policing operations, would something less advanced and expensive than TSR-2 suffice? Moreover, as he understood that Sakir considered that the tactical strike, tactical strike aircraft obsolescent, the Prime Minister suggested that the Canberra's function would be taken over by missiles. By purchasing the TSR-2, will we escape the liability to purchase such missiles? In response to these points, it was pointed out that in limited war, the British contribution should be self-contained if we were to rely on it being effective, and that it was not inconceivable that in the next decade we might be engaged in limited war without American help. Operations which started as minor police actions could well develop into limited wars if certain countries uh, equipped with Russian fighters should intervene. They were much more likely to do so if, we, if it were known that we had no superior aircraft to deploy. There was no missile that might meet the requirements in such circumstances. In Europe, Secure's views were probably based on existing strike aircraft. In any case, there would be a requirement for reconnaissance. Further, the, the completely new characteristics of the TSR-2, particularly ease of dispersal, might well produce a revised appreciation. While Lloyd, for his part, accepted there was no satisfactory alternative to the TSR-2, he was nevertheless concerned that the cost of new equipment was rising and seemed likely to be at its highest when the TSR-2 reached the production stage. His approval, therefore, was conditional on efforts being made to keep research and development costs and the probable final unit cost under strict control and on the understanding that the size of the production order would depend on the outcome of a complete review of the defence budget at the appropriate time. Ultimately, the TSR2 programme survived scrutiny by the committee. Their endorsement was nevertheless somewhat qualified. Approval of the full development contract came with the understanding that the Air Ministry and the Ministry of Aviation were to ensure that research and development costs and the probable final unit cost were kept under strict control. Moreover, the number of aircraft that would be procured for the RAF at the end of the development phase remained open. At least one of those attending the Cabinet Defence Committee meeting needed no convincing as to TSR2's potential. However, Watkinson had succeeded Duncan Sands at the Ministry of Defence on the latter's appointment as the first Minister of Aviation in October 1959. Watkinson later recalled how he had had acquired a, remo- a somewhat emotional as well as ministerial commitment to a very remarkable project during his tenure at Stories Gate. Similarly, Duncan Sands, with his tough determination to carry through projects on which his mind was set, stuck to the TSR2 through thick and thin. The announcement on 7th of October 1970 of a full development contract for TSR2 had been the result of a tough battle and the decision was only achieved by putting my total ministerial and personal influence behind the project, 
Wilkinson wrote in his 1986 memoir, Turning Points. I am sure that Duncan Sands and I were right in going ahead. Over the next few years, the costs associated with TSR2 would balloon. By the middle of 1963, it was estimated that development expenditure alone would reach 200 million, almost two and a half times the figure presented by War to the Cabinet Defence Committee in 1960, while procurement would add a further 300 million to the bill. Although the overrun can be attributed largely to the demanding nature of the requirement, to some degree the spiralling research and development costs also reflected expanding expectations as to the roles that the aircraft would be expected to fulfil. At the outset, the air staff regarded any likely Cambo successor as a potential made of all work. And although the case for TSR2 had been catched initially in terms of its tactical strike and reconnaissance roles, the aircraft's potential duties would be expanded to compensate for the cancellation of other weapons. One of these was Blue Water, a tactical nuclear missile under development for the British Army of the Rhine. Given that the concept of, war, of a war of movement on the European front with the employment of modern nuclear weapons, but without the exchange of strategic nuclear weapons was untenable, the decision to cancel Blue Water was approved by the Cabinet on the 3rd of August 1962. During the discussion, the Minister of Defence, Peter Thornycroft, endorsed um, the Air Staff's belief that the TSR-2 would be capable of satisfactorily discharging the role planned for Blue Water on the European front. Although he also went on to note that the Chief of the Imperial General Staff could not accept this view. At the other end of the spectrum, in the early 1960s, emphasis would be placed on the TSR's poten potential as a strategic weapon. The notion was far from new. As early as January 1952, it had been suggested that any replacement for the camber might be used to assist in the strategic offensive against shorter range or special targets. In his July 1957 paper to the Air Council stating the case for GRR-339, the Deputy Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Geoffrey Tuttle, had observed that any aircraft resulting from this requirement, with range increased by flight refuelling, would pose a low-level threat to Russia and thus, thus contribute to the primary deterrent. However, the demise of two missile systems in relatively short, um, short order would refocus attention on the TSR-2. In 1960, Blue Streak, a medium-range ballistic missile then intended to su supplement the V-Force, uh, was cancelled in favour of Skybolt, an air-launched ballistic cruise missile to be launched from Bomber Command's Vulcan B-2s. However, just two years later, Skybolt would itself be cancelled by the Kennedy administration. Although the decision to acquire Polaris submarine-launched ballistic missiles in place of Skybolt marked the eventual demise of the V-Force, uh, as the core of the UK's strategic nuclear deterrent, the RAS medium bombers would be required to sole join in the deterrent role until the Royal Navy's new Polaris submarines entered service. In the memorandum for the Cabinet Defence Committee dated the 15th of January 1963, the Minister of Defence discussed what additional measures should now be taken to improve the credibility of our nuclear deterrent during the period before our Polaris becomes operational. He argued that plans already in hand to reduce Bomber Command to a total of 88 Vulcan, B2, Vulcan Mark II and Victor Mark II aircraft by 1965 should go ahead, 
and that they should then continue to service the UK's deterrent force pending the, the arrival of Polaris. TSR-2 now offered a way of further augmenting the medium bomber force in the interim. The employment of TSR-2 squadrons as a spearhead for the MBF was now touted as a way of enhancing the overall credibility of the manned deterrent prior to Polaris. Towards the end of the decade, the TSR-2 will come into service, and though this aircraft has been intended for a tactical role, it can provide useful strategic support, Thornikoff noted. It may be that we shall have to consider purchasing further TSR-2s for this purpose, but unless special measures are taken to increase the planned production rate, this would not affect deliveries until after 1970, and no decision need be taken for some years. Concerns with regard to the defence budget, never far away, came to the fore in 1963. The increasing cost of TSR2 came at a time when UK, the UK was still attempting to bear world, worldwide defence commitments as a significant number of other equipment programmes, notably the next generation of Royal Navy aircraft carriers in the introduction of a new family of armoured vehicles for BAOR, were also in search of funding commitments. The dilemma faced by the Macmillan government was laid out at a meeting of the Cabinet Defence Committee that took place at Chequers on the 9th of February. The only item on the agenda was the UK's future defence policy. It fell to Chancellor of the Exchequer Regional Maudling to make the case for a reduction in spending. The level of defence expenditure now forecast for 1963-64 represented a 10% increase on the year before, an unprecedented rise in time of peace, he informed his colleagues. Apart from France and Portugal, we were already carrying a heavier defence burden than any other European country. Maudlin went on to emphasise that the economy could not stand a rising level of defence expenditure. It should, if possible, be reduced and at the very least held level. However painful military reductions might be, the progressive weakening of the economy will not only make it impossible to meet even the most essential of our military commitments, but would have far more damaging repercussions in other fields. Subsequently, in a paper for the, for the Defence Committee circulated on the, the 14th of June 1963, Cabinet Secretary Sir Burke Trend identified four elements within the defence budget that could offer su- substantial economies. Polaris, Army personnel numbers with particular regard to BAOR, the Royal Navy's carrier replacement proposals and the aircraft associated with it, and TSR-2. None were straightforward. In the case of TSR-2, he warned that cancellation would rob the future RAF of a medium-range capability of reconnaissance strike and strike, whether with conventional and, and nuclear we- um, or nuclear weapons, and which should be unable to support a purely British military attack against strong opposition in any part of the world. Can we afford, even allowing for Polaris, to take this risk, Trent went on to ask, particularly so long as we assume that we remain committed to the defence of Europe against a conventional attack? Initially, TSR2 appeared to be too deeply entrenched in the defence programme to be at risk of cancellation. It also also acquired too high a political profile, both within and beyond Parliament. 
The main decision with which we are faced immediately is whether to embark upon a carrier replacement program and whether to press on with the aircraft and guided weapons programs currently envisaged, Thornycroft argued on the 2nd of July, July 1963. I regard the TSR2 as over the dam for political reasons, if no other. However, 1964 would see no let up on either the rising development costs associated with the TSR2 programme, estimated at 240 to 260 million in January 1964, or the pressure on the public purse. <clears throat> Moreover, there were signs that senior RAF officers and civil servants were beginning to have qualms as to the cost effectiveness of TSR2 and the effect that its ever-increasing overruns might have on RAF procurement in the round. According to Cecil James, in a paper presented to the Air Council in October 1963, the BCAS, Sir Wallace Kyle, noted that TSR2 in the strike role would cost at least 15 times as much as the Canberra, 30 times if a multi's R&D were taken into account, but no one could claim that it would have, have 15 times the striking power. Matters culminated in the following year when the Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Charles Sam Elworthy, after discussion with a very limited circle, took a note from himself to the Secretary of State for Air, Hugh Fraser, who showed it to Thornycroft expressing doubts about the project. The paper was torn up and CS told that this was not a matter to be discussed before an election. On coming to power in October 1964, the new Labour government set in train a major review of aircraft procurement programmes, including a search for overseas alternatives. The selection of the General Dynamics Dynamics F-111 over the TSR-2 was eased by the generous terms under which it was offered by the US government. The TSR-2 is costing us one million a week, 20 million since we consumed office. Secretary of State for Defence Dennis Healy noted at the end of March 1965, and the decision to cancel the aircraft was confirmed by the Cabinet on the following day. Given the nature of the debate that that had raged within the previous Conservative administrations, it can be argued that the re-elected Conservative government would probably have come to the same decision. In conclusion, therefore, it's clear that the abandonment of the TSR-2 reflected a wider collapse of confidence in Whitehall and Westminster regarding the aircraft. It was, by any measure, a highly political programme. Indeed, in 1966, the Treasury Historical Committee rejected a proposed history of the TSR-2 on the grounds that it was unlikely to produce lessons which could be applied in the future. The reasons for continuing with TSR-2 were so political that the situation could not be said to have been under any administrative control. In his 1976, 1970 rather, R.K. Pearson Memorial Lecture, Marshal of the Royal Air Force Sir Dermot Boyle decried the decision to cancel TSR2. The operational requirement is, I understand, still there, he stated, and all that is needed to meet, all that is needed to meet it is the TSR2, which, where it's still flying, would be the best of its kind in the world. The lesson that he drew was clear. The provision of vital operational equipment for the Royal Air Force is too serious and obviously much too difficult a matter to be left to the politicians. 
However, Savant Cooper, a senior civil servant in the Air Ministry and later the Unified Ministry of Defence, would subsequently express a more nuanced view. Major defence changes, he observed in his contribution to the IAF Historical Society seminar devoted to TSR2 in April 1997, are rarely the result of internal policy initiatives. They stem in the main either from external influences or from economic and financial factors. It was these factors that broke the TSRs two back. His final judgment on the TSR2 saga was stark. An extraordinary and and complex story. Cancellation was inevitable. Thank you.